Good evening. Welcome to Beijing Diary. I say good evening, I use the term loosely. It's already two o'clock in the morning. We're talking today about racism. What is racism? I have been uh, provoked by this question because there seems to be so much misunderstanding about it. I, I think it was about a year ago now, I was having a conversation on Facebook with Melissa, a little M, and uh, I was re- responding actually to a tweet by uh, AOC where she said, you know, there was that uh, terrorism, act of terrorism in New Zealand, and uh, Trump was asked if he thought that uh, indicated an increase in white supremacy, and he said no. And so she said that his response meant that he would turn a blind eye to uh, mass murder or something like that. And I thought that was a complete non sequitur. But in thinking about it, the thing that struck me was that he answered the question pretty much the way I would have answered it. And I certainly wouldn't turn a blind eye to mass murder. But then I started to think, well, maybe this is generational. The baby boomers are more inclined to think that uh, racism is declining, or at least in the United States, you know, it's, 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 it's on the way, whereas the younger generation tends to think it's increasing. But I don't think it is generational, because when I listen to uh, someone like Candace Owens, she's, she takes pretty much the position that I do, and uh, she's 30 years old. So uh, then I, I started to think about this, and I... Anyway, I, had, I was gonna, I was gonna post something about it, and I got distracted. I had to take a trip to South China, and so I was down in Guangzhou, which uh, has been traditionally known in the West as Canton. And I was, uh, I had to go down to Hong Kong, and I so I met with a friend of mine who uh, used to live in Beijing, and Linda and I were gonna have dinner. She 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 used to live in Beijing, but she and her husband live in Guangzhou now. They they're actually from Hubei province, where the virus is. But they work live and work in Guangzhou. So she said, "What kind of food do you want?" I said, "Cantonese." You know, <laughs> when you're in Canton, you want to have Cantonese food. Very hard to find a good Cantonese restaurant in Beijing. So she took me to this Cantonese restaurant. Oh man, very delicious food, but. The popular place, you know, so we had to make an appointment, and uh, they said we couldn't get in for another couple hours. So Linda said, well, you want to go see a movie? And so we went down, I think it was down the floor below in, uh, in the mall, the same mall, and uh, walked into this cinema, and there was a movie called Green Book. I thought, that's a awkward name for a movie, a strange name for a movie, and uh, probably isn't going to be that interesting, but... It just, the time happened to be just perfect. It was starting in five minutes, and it was going to be over by the time of our uh, dinner appointment. So we went into that movie, and interestingly enough, it was about racism. And uh, it's it's a good movie. It's uh, it's not an epic movie like Sound of Music or something like that, but it's a, it's a good movie. And in watching that movie, I was struck by it again, how... The institutionalized racism that was just accepted and standard at that time, it's shocking to us. 
And so I thought, you know, the young kids today, they have no idea. They, have, they, they, they don't see what it was really like at, at that particular uh, time in history. So if you're interested in the, in the issue of racism in America, I really do recommend that movie. Now, even if you're not, it's, it's, it's kind of a folksy, heartwarming show. Uh, Linda, sitting next to me, she said, Oh, Italians are like Chinese. They think family is important. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, this, this sort of uh, reinforced my belief that there seems to be a, uh, a disconnect and the way a lot of uh, the modern generation looks at the issue of racism. But the thing that really set me off was the statement that Donald Trump made about, he was responding to the squad, and uh, he made a statement which certain elements of the media immediately branded as racist. And so everybody was saying, you know, Trump's a racist. And... That really caught my attention because uh, the statement that he made is not racist. Now, there is a problem with it, and I'll explain that. And I've got it there on my blog, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I I, uh, I just want to read through it quickly. And then you can look at it more closely at, uh, at your leisure. Here is his statement. So interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt, and inept anywhere in the world, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it is done. That's not racist. But there is a problem with it. He aimed it at the squad, which is four Democrat congresswomen, and it doesn't fit all four of them. It fits one of them to the T, but... Uh, you know, when you say, go back where you came from, well, excuse me a minute, I'm pour some tea. In America, they give the teacher an apple. In China, they give you tea. It doesn't fit all of them. AOC is from Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Now, she she has sort of this contrived background. She likes to think of herself as a poor working girl from the Bronx. She's from Westchester County. Uh, so uh, there's some issues there with how she presents herself. But she's an American. Uh, she's born and raised in America, and she, her family, her background is Puerto Rico. You know, you tell a Puerto Rican to go back to the country they came from, the country they came from is the United States. Puerto Rico is part of the United States of America. Rashida Tlaib is uh, Palestinian, you can't tell a Palestinian to go back where they came from. The Palestinians, that's their whole issue. <laughs> they want nothing more than to go back where they came from. They want the right of return. Now, there's a lot of argument about, you know, Palestinians, and I, in the evangelical background that I came from, the common story that you hear is that the Arab nations told the Palestinians 
leave your homes, get out of there, and we're going to go in and wipe Israel off the map, and then you come back and have your your houses and we'll live in peace. But when I read the concise history of the Middle East, they disputed that. Now, I don't know what the true story is, but I I don't believe that the Palestinians just willingly gave up their homes. I think they left because they were terrified. Now, some would say, well, they were afraid for nothing. The, the Israelis wouldn't have hurt them. You know, the Jews who were coming in wouldn't wouldn't have hurt them. Well, we can debate that. But I don't think they left because they didn't want their homes anymore. They they left because they were afraid. And so I've, I've had to... You know, I, I'm a supporter of Israel as far as Israel's right to exist as a nation, but I am concerned about the way they treat the Palestinian civilians. So it's just... Uh, quite insensitive to tell a Palestinian to go back where they came from. Uh, and, of course, Rashida Tlaib is an American. I mean, her background is Palestinian, but she's American. And uh, the third one is uh, black American black woman. I don't really know anything about her. But you can't tell a, tell a black American to go back where they came from. They were captured in Africa and sold as slaves and brought to America by force under terrible conditions. But the fourth one, Ilhan Omar, the remark, I think, is very, for her, is, is very appropriate. She ought to go back to Somalia. Somalia is the failed state, and uh, is a failed state, and I'm sure that's what Trump was thinking when he made that statement. So he should have directed it at her. So if you look on my blog, I have quoted his statement, and then I edited it to direct it to one person and directed to all four of them it's, it doesn't fit it doesn't fit three of them but when you direct it just to Ilhan Omar it is an appropriate statement now I don't uh, I don't see eye to eye with those four congresswomen AOC is uh, well annoying but I don't see her as, as evil it just uh you know, loony is not the same as evil. <laughs> uh, Rashida Tlaib is foul-mouthed and uh, has a disgusting attitude. Uh, and the black woman, again, I, I really don't know that much about her. But Ilan Omar, uh, she has an, a... Uh, her attitude of ingratitude and contempt for the country that uh, has shown her so much kindness... It's really, really hard to take. And if it really is true that she married her brother, then she should be stripped of her citizenship and sent back to Somalia after she served her time. But at least you could say, you know, it's appropriate to say to someone like that, you know, if you don't like America, why don't you go back where you came from and try to fix that country? So the statement is anything but racist, yet it is branded as racism. Why? Because criticizing a person of color. That's racism now. Well, when you take a word like racism and trivialize it like that, it waters down the word so that uh, to the point where it really has no meaning. And that's not fair to the people who really are victims of racism. There is racism in America, and there has been racism in America. But if you brand any kind of criticism as racism, that robs the word of its meaning. 
As a teacher, I'm quite sensitive about that. Words have meanings, and we need to understand what those words mean. And then, to top it all off, I was listening to uh, CNN, and a CNN uh, reporter was, I can't remember who she was interviewing, but she read a definition from Merriam-Webster Dictionary of racism. And then, after reading that definition, which, to her, she thought that that was proof that Trump was a racist, she asked the people, you know, what they thought about it. And when I listened to that, it struck me funny, because by the definition she just read, Trump is not a racist. So I thought, you know, either she is so blinded by her hatred of Trump that she's not thinking straight, or she literally does not understand the definition she just read. So then I thought, you know what, i got to come up with a definition of racism that is so simple, even a CNN journalist could understand it. So that's the definition we are going to use in our discussion of racism. So here it is. Listen to this. Racism is the belief that moral qualities are genetically derived. Racism is a belief that moral qualities are genetically derived. Period. That's it. A racist is someone who believes that moral qualities are genetically derived. If you believe that moral qualities are genetically derived, you are racist. Adolf Hitler was a racist. If you read Mein Kampf, uh, you will see racism, pure vitriolic racism. The treatment of a whole group of people as being genetically inferior and therefore somehow deserving of different treatment is racism. And that movie, which Linda and I saw in our break before our our meal, delicious meal. We had cooked goose. Oh, my goodness. Incredibly delicious. But anyway, that, was, that, that depicted racism. But in today's world, any criticism of a person of color is considered racism. That's wrong. So when I watch uh, uh, media like uh, CNN or uh, Al Jazeera is another example. I was watching uh, Listening Post, you know, talking about Trump being a racist and how different pe- people react to it. Uh, you know, Al Jazeera does have some good documentaries, but their news section seems to have been taken over by left-wing Americans because it really is <laughs> uh, very, very biased and shallow-minded. So let me... Let me give you an example of a legitimate debate question. Then I'll give you an example of an illegitimate debate question. Here's a legitimate debate question. Trump said X. Is this a racist statement or is this not a racist statement? How many of you think it's racist? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's not racist? Raise your hand. Okay, let's debate it. That's a legitimate debate question. Now, I do not believe that that statement is racist. Go to my blog and uh, go to the blog post for this uh, podcast and 
and uh, look at it. It's not racist. I, I don't believe it's racist, but I do believe that it's a legitimate question for debate. I, I recognize there are people who think it is racist, and I think it's legitimate to have a debate between people who think it is and people who think it isn't. What is racism? And then examine the statement. That's a legitimate question for debate. Now, here is an illegitimate debate question. Here's an illegitimate debate question. Since we all know that Trump is a racist, why is it that some people aren't as bothered by his racism as others? Is it because they don't really understand how bad his racism is, or is it because they are racist themselves? That's not a legitimate debate question. Why? Because it assumes something without presenting argument. It is, asks us to assume that Trump is a racist without ever presenting the argument of whether or not he is. That's not a legitimate debate question. And I think that sort of thinking comes from people who just really don't have a grasp of the history of how the whole civil rights uh, movement in America developed, you know, first of all, we have uh, uh, the abolition of slavery in the 19th century. And of course, uh, when I came to America, I, my, my parents were missionaries in Japan. Would We moved to America when I was 13 years old. But I had lived in America before that, uh, went to kindergarten and first grade in America. So during my childhood, I lived for four years in North Dakota. And North Dakota, no black people. I think it, at one time there was a black kid, one black kid living in our town. And, you know, we, we just didn't have a, a connection to uh, the idea of, uh, of racism and, you know, that, that whole issue. We just weren't... weren't uh, we just weren't aware of it, and we, you know, we we didn't use things like the N word. You know, we didn't really understand that. I didn't even know what it meant. You know, we'd say things like "eeny meeny miny mo catch a nigger by the toe." I didn't know what that was, and I just remember one time uh, mom telling us, "You must never use that word. Never use that word," and so. Of course, the question is, well, what are we supposed to call them? She said they're supposed to be called colored people. Uh, that that was really the extent of of my knowledge of it at, at that part of my in that part of my life. But you know, when I came as a thirteen year old kid to to junior high, I had uh, by that time I had read about the Underground Railroad. I was fascinated by that. And I'd read uh, the book about the Andrews Raiders. You know, they went uh, south and uh, commandeered a, a train and uh, then headed back north and burned up the tracks, uh, tore up the tracks. It's a famous story from uh, the Civil War. So I was aware of that whole issue. And I, you know, But when I came to America, I read a book called Black Like Me. The guy who uh, colored his skin darkened his skin and then traveled through the South so he could write and journal about how blacks are treated. 
Now, I've often wondered if there's any way to verify exactly how valid that is, because he was just by himself. But when I read that book, I was horrified. I said, what is this? I thought Lincoln freed the slaves, you know. I mean, I just didn't really have any relation to the to the whole civil rights phenomenon, and I started to study it. So I've made a lifetime study of uh, of that issue. And when you when you look at the history of it, you know, you have Booker T. Washington, uh, the Tuskegee Institute, and uh, George Washington Carver. I read the uh, when I was a kid, read the the story of George Washington Carver, and was fascinated by that. And then you have the the other uh, the other end of it, W. B. Du Bois, and you know the different uh, emphases on how to approach this problem, and then the uh, Jim Crow laws. Uh, the mass migration, most young people today have no idea about that. Six million blacks moved from the south to the north to get away from the Jim Crow laws. I've uh, posted uh, a, a book, um, uh, it's called, the, I think, what's the name of it again? The Warmth of Other Suns. I, uh, if you look back at my uh, my bl- uh, blog post on the American Civil War, you can see that. Six million people moved from the south to the north, and, and some of them had to escape. I remember her telling in one incident in there in that book about how uh, the blacks were lined up at the train station ready to get on the train to go to the north, and the, either the conductor or the police, local police officer just grabbed their tickets and tore them up. So they had to escape. Six million people. You know, young people today talking about racism have no idea what it was like uh, in uh, during the Jim Crow years. So when I see the statement that uh, Donald Trump made being described as racism merely because it's a criticism of a, peop- a person of color, or people of color, that's just absurd. So we need to take a serious look at this. What really is racism? The belief that moral qualities are genetically derived. Now, I know some people will say, well, don't you believe that uh, we inherited sin from Adam? Now, I don't want to get confused with the theology, so let me let me just take a break and take care of the theological question so we can go on with this. Yes, of course, we are born in sin. I do believe in the doctrine of original sin. I do not believe that all men are basically good. Jesus did not believe that. And Confucius did not believe that. So let me take care of that issue from the beginning, and then we'll uh, we'll come back to it so that there's no confusion about this. I'm going to read you first the Christian perspective. Uh, the basic philosophy of the Christian faith is found in the book of Romans. So let me read the Christian perspective, and then I'll read the Confucian perspective. This is from Romans chapter 2. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So, he says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law. And the problem, and if you study Romans chapter 2, what he's dealing with is the Jews who were saying, okay, we don't actually follow everything in our law, 
But our law is so good, so that means we're better than other people. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. If, you're, if your law is good and you're not following it, that doesn't make you better. That makes you worse because you're openly admitting that you do not do what you know to be right. Okay, so how is it that we are that our actions are determined, or that our knowledge of right and wrong, it's the law of God written on our hearts. It's our conscience. But we don't do it. We don't do what, what we know is right. Now let me take a look at the Confucian perspective. Okay, and now I'm looking at the English translation by Arthur Whaley. And Confucius has been describing, you know, what a good man is like. And then it says here, The Master said, I, for my part, have never yet seen one who really cared for goodness, nor one who really abhorred wickedness. One who really cared for goodness would never let any other consideration come first. One who abhorred wickedness would be so constantly doing good that wickedness would never have a chance to get at him. Has anyone ever managed to do good with his whole might even as long as the space of a single day? I think not. Yet I, for my part, have never seen anyone give up such an attempt because he had not enough strength to go on. It may well have happened, but I, for my part, have never seen it. So, What's he saying there? He's saying, have you ever seen someone good even for a whole day? Okay, so you can say, well, you know, people try to be good, but they're just so tired and so exhausted, they just can't make it. And Confucius is saying, no, I've never seen anyone who gave up just because they were too exhausted or too tired. It may have happened, but I've never seen it. So why do they give up? Because in fact they're not really good. They don't really want goodness with their whole heart. So from the Christian perspective, you know, have Paul saying, I think it's in Romans chapter 5, uh, for by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men. And so we, we don't really do what we know is right. And Confucius saying, you know, nobody really pursues goodness with their whole heart. So Confucius describes a good man. He'll say, like, a good man is like this, or the good man is like this. But then in the end, he says, I've never met a good man. In other words, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, you see the similarity in those two lines of thought. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Confucius said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Very similar, right? But Confucius and Jesus never met each other. Confucius had never met Jesus Christ. So where did he get that idea? It came from the law of God written in his heart. So we all have a conscience. You know, human beings are not animals. We are created in the image of God. And we have God's law written on our heart. But in fact, we don't follow it. So I'm when I talk about uh, the idea of uh, goodness, I'm not saying, you know, some people are good, some people are bad. And we're all imperfect. We're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I'm not trying to make a distinction between some people who are truly good and some people who are truly bad. We're all, we all have a, a nature when we're born, you know, we're born in sin. Jesus believed that. 
and you know Confucius doesn't really talk about being born in sin so much, but he does talk about the fact that there's that no one is truly good. So what then do I mean by moral quality? Moral quality is defined as the extent to which you do what you know is right. Do you do what you believe to be right? Do you avoid doing what you know to be wrong? If you do what you know is right, you are good. But if you complain, you say, "Well, I don't. You know, I'm not. I don't agree with your religion. I have my own religion." Okay, let's look at your own religion. Write it down. Do you follow it? Do you do what you personally believe is right? Do you always re- avoid doing what you personally believe is wrong? That's what we talk about when we, when I. That's what I'm referring to when I say moral quality, and that does not come from your genes. The belief that it comes from your genes is racism. Okay, let's uh, take a break here for an important message, and then we'll come back. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. In three short months, COVID-19 turned the entire world upside down. Now, all eyes are on India as infections rise in the world's second most populated nation. Keeping the virus contained with 1.3 billion people in a failed healthcare system is unlikely, but efforts are underway. Todd Van Eck of Grand Rapids, Michigan-based Mission India says the pandemic has a silver lining. Gospel opportunities have radically increased. Details in the full report at missionnews.org. Meanwhile, believers across the Arab world are ready to step up and lead their churches. Recognizing this opportunity, the Program for Theological Education by Extension is expanding their online course offerings. By ensuring leaders have access to the education they need, Churches will thrive as a result. So pray for the ministry's development team as they prepare these critical resources. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Uh, it's terrible to see what's going on in India. And I guess uh, a lot of places have been shut down, so people are desperately trying to get back to their hometown. Uh, some of them just have said, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die at home. But but a lot of them, you just, just have nothing. You know, they, they, if their job is shut down, they, they, they're desperate. So they just want to get back to their, to their home. I was listening to uh, KQED yesterday morning, and uh, you know, listening to some of these people talking about how they're trying, just trying to get home. And sometimes it's good for us to be aware that there are people in this world who are really suffering, real problems, far greater than the trauma of having to listen to someone who disagrees with you. (laughs) So, racism is the belief that moral qualities are genetically derived. Racism is not disagreeing with a black person. That's not racism. And so, you know, when I see people talking about racism and Trump being a racist and that that statement being racist, I just—they have no sense of history. Just forget about the the slavery, the Civil War. Just look at the 20th century, and what blacks have had to deal with. Going through the the, the Jim Crow period, as I mentioned, the Great Migration, and then into the Civil Rights era. Era, and uh, you know we have Martin Luther King Jr. and. Uh, I strongly recommend uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. 
a lot of people talk about his I Have a Dream speech, but uh, the, I think the letter from a Birmingham jail is actually better. But, you know, he, he was arrested for doing 30 in a 25. They arrested him and took him into the police station and booked him. There, there really was pure racism during that time period, not just disagreeing with someone who's a minority. And uh, Malcolm X is interesting also because he was uh, a northern black. You know, with when you deal with someone like Martin Luther King Jr., sometimes people in the north are somewhat sanctimonious about this, you know. They talk about it as if it's just a southern problem. But uh, Martin, uh, Malcolm X had never been south of Mason-Dixon. I'm sure later in his life he probably was, but uh, in his younger years he was never south of Mason-Dixon. He was a northern black, so the racism that he saw and that he describes was all in the north. And when he joined uh, the black Muslims, of course, that was a racist organization. They believed that the white man is descended from Satan. Uh, Malcolm X is very interesting, though. If you, you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, it's written by Alex Haley, who wrote uh, Roots. But he describes how he became a black Muslim, and, you know, the black Muslims were led by Elijah Muhammad. It was kind of an offbeat group. And I just question how sincere some of them really were, because they don't seem to have any connection with uh, Islam generally. But that wasn't true of Malcolm X. He said, if I'm going to be a Muslim, I guess I better go to Mecca. And he actually went to Mecca. And he met people there who were not black and really nice people. And that really struck him. That really forced him to start thinking about this issue. Another incident he mentions is uh, he was speaking, I think, on a college campus and about racism, and uh, a young lady came up to him, a young white woman, and she was really upset about this. She was really struck by and stricken by the things that he had said. And uh, so she said, what can we do? What, 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 what can I do? What can I do to to, to help? And, and Malcolm X said, man, there ain't nothing you can do. And she burst into tears and walked away, and that really upset him. He realized that his whole presentation was completely negative. And once again, he was confronted with here as a white person who's really seems to be a good person and who's, who wants to be, he was concerned about this problem and not racist. Another thing that he mentions uh in his story is uh, the fact that when he was a child, he was a foster child for a while, in the family of some Seventh-day Adventists. He said they were the nicest white people he had ever met. And that's from someone who was taught to believe that the white man is descended from Satan. So he started out, you know, as a religious racist and slowly began to change and saw that goodness and badness is not a function of your race. So in some ways, I, I appreciate Malcolm X even more than Martin Luther King Jr. because Malcolm X really went through that transition of understanding that racism is not genetic. It doesn't come from your genes. The belief that 
racism that uh, that goodness or badness comes from your genes is racism. But that does not mean you know we can uh, if if we say no, it's not genetic. It doesn't mean we don't criticize a culture. So I am not a racist, but I am a culturist. Now I'm I'm going to have to. Uh, I looked it up in uh, dictionary.com, and they've already got a definition for it. So I'm going to have to contact them and have them add another one because my definition of culturism is the belief that moral qualities are culturally derived or at least culturally influenced. Or maybe we could say it this way. Culturism is the belief that some cultures are superior to others or more precisely that certain aspects of some cultures are morally superior to certain aspects of other cultures. I do believe that. Now, if you are inclined to criticize me, I have news for you. You believe it too. Everyone's a culturist. So let me give you an example. Do you believe that a culture that teaches that men are superior to women is morally superior or morally inferior to a culture that teaches that men and women are equal? I'm not talking about intellectually superior now. I'm talking about morally see, if you say yes, then you're a culturist. If you say no, well then, in, an, in one sense, you are also making a cultural judgment. So we all do this from time to time. We, 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 as, as, as people of conscience and principle, as a, as a Christian, I do pass judgment on cultures. As Francis Schaeffer said, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then society is absolute. We don't allow society to determine what's right, to determine what's right or wrong. When you criticize society, you are criticizing culture. I can say, look at some aspects of black culture and say, no, I think that's bad, or I think that's good. I can make this comparison between uh, American culture and Chinese culture, and you know, we do make cultural comparisons. I, I, I make no apology for that. But that doesn't come from genetics. So criticizing culture, criticizing a culture and criticizing certain aspects of certain cultures is not racism. Racism is the belief that goodness or badness is genetically derived. Okay, now I want to talk about the N-word. Actually, N-words. There are three main N-words, and we need to clarify this because there's a lot of misunderstanding. The first N-word is Negro. Negro was the polite term for black folks. Now, sometimes in, in today's world, the, the young millennials, they, they, don't, they don't understand this. I heard one guy talking about how, you know, the Negro really was really a negative word. Even though it sounded better, it really was a negative word. That's not accurate. That's not true. Negro was the polite term for blacks. Uh, 
in in the 60s. Uh, the other day I was watching uh, a report from Fox News and they showed Joe Biden and they showed a quote from either, I think it was either the 60s, late 60s or 70s or something. And he said the word Negro and they bleeped it out. That's really unfair. Now I have my disagreements with Biden, but I don't think he's a racist. He was using the polite term. Negro was the polite word for blacks. Uh, the second word is the main N-word that we all know, N-I-G-G-E-R. Now, that has generally, most everybody accepts that as a pejorative term. Though I don't know if I would say absolutely that it's that it's always a, a negative term, but I mean... In other words, there could be some people saying it innocently, but generally we we recognize that's not a good word to say. I think uh, of an example of a statement that with the N word that probably was not not racist, maybe in poor taste, but but not. Let, let me just let me just read this to you. Uh, LBJ uh, appointed Thurgood Marshall as a Solicitor General, and Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall, you know, was a little hesitant about it. So Johnson says to him, I want folks to walk down the hall at the Justice Department and see a nigger sitting there. You know, <laughs> now, you know, he shouldn't use that word. It's in poor taste, but I don't think that was really uh, a, a racist expression. But generally speaking, that word, N-I-G-G-E-R, is seen as a pejorative term. If you read uh, Gone with the Wind, she uses that term a lot and usually expresses it with, you know, black slaves, the more uh, cultured or the, what they used to, what the, the slaves who refer to themselves as house niggers, referring to the other blacks or as, as, as niggers, you know, it's used a lot in that book, but it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is most of the time when you see the N-word in Gone with the Wind, it's black people using it against other other black people. Now, that's a novel, so you have to remember the novel often reflects the bias of the writer, not necessarily, not necessarily true to the times, and the novel was not written during the Civil War. If you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, that's a novel too, but that was written before the Civil War, but... Gone with the Wind was written in the Old South during the Jim Crow period, you know. So you have to uh, you have to take that into consideration when you read it. But I think generally throughout the whole span of uh, this issue, N I G G E R, that the main N word has been seen as a negative, pejorative word in the main. Then the third word is nigra. N-I-G-G-R-A. Nigra was uh, a word used by white boys in the Old South who knew that uh, the main N-word, they weren't supposed to say that, but they didn't want to say the polite word either, you know, Negro, because that would uh, be showing respect that they did not have. Uh, here's what uh, the... Urban Dictionary says about nigra. 
Remember, this is N-I-G-G-R-A. This term was used during the Jim Crow law days when the rednecks of the South couldn't pronounce the words due to their heavy southern drawls. So they're saying because they had a southern accent, they couldn't say Negro. I don't accept that. The reason they said nigra is not because they had a southern accent. It's because they had a southern attitude. Fix the attitude and uh, you'll have no problem with the uh, with the pronunciation. So first negro, that's the polite term. And again, there's a misconception about that. But if you read uh, Jimmy Carter's book, uh, Candidate, a State, and a Nation Come of Age, I think it's called Turning Point. I always remember the subtitle more than the title. So, Candidate, the State, and a Nation Come of Age. That I really, really, really strongly recommend. You you really must read that book if you want to understand this issue. But he talks about going to the Georgia State Legislature, and one old legislator is uh, trying to school these new white legislators. They're sort of socially conscious, and they want to be appropriate, and he's teaching them how to say Negro. So he touches his knee, and then he pulls his hands together to show the growing motion. Knee, grow. As if they had to be taught. You see, those phonemes are very common in the English language. But when, when people in the South say knee, they say knee just like people in the North. Get down on your knees, or, you know, I bumped my knee. They don't say I bumped my knee. And when they talk about their crops growing... They say grow. They don't say gruh. So knee and grow together is negro. It wasn't that hard to say. But they just wouldn't do it. <laughs> and so finally, the blacks said, okay, look, just just call us black. Just, just call us black. And I'll never forget I was in a uh, group discussion competition in junior high. This was in Minnesota. I don't know if they have that anymore. I, I, a few years ago, I was doing a, I wanted to do group discussion competition with my students. So I did some research on the internet, and I couldn't find anything about it. I don't even know if the state of Minnesota is doing it anymore. I finally found a university in India that had a, a program for a group discussion competition. I think, you know, it, in in, uh, in the state of Minnesota, they did group discussion competition for middle school students, and then in high school they went into debate. But for me, I think that group discussion competition was actually better than debate. But we had uh, the, the group discussion competition, and we were using a book called The Peaceable Revolution about King and Gandhi and Thoreau and... You know, this was 1968 or 69. I, I can't remember which year. I went to Fergus Falls Junior High for two years. So we were talking one time, and there was a kid there who was, uh, I don't know, kind of a nerd. You know, he was always coming off with these wild statements. Very smart kid, you know. But uh, And one day we were talking, and he, he said, you know, the Negroes in the South, they, they just want to be called black now. They just want to be called black. And those socially conscious Minnesota white boys just tore into him. Said, that is ridiculous. How can you say that? 
Would you like it if I called you Whitey? Hi, Whitey. You know, they were just ridiculing him, but he was right. The blacks, you know, it wasn't because they didn't like the term Negro, but people wouldn't say it, you know. Well, they know they're not supposed to say the main N-word, so they'd say Negro. You know, they, they wouldn't say Negro. So the polite term then became black, and that happened in the late 60s. As I said, I first heard it in 1968 or 69, and it worked. It worked. How can you say, how can you make black sound bad, you know, blick? <laughs> so that became the new term, Negro, and then N-I-G-G-E-R, Negro, and Nigra. Those are the three main Edwards. Edwards. The only other one I've heard is uh, Jesse Smollett called Trump a nigga, N-I-G-G-A, nigga. Now, that's a crude, crass thing to do. How can you be, now, I don't know if you would call it racist, but it certainly is trivializing racism. It certainly isn't being insensitive about racism. How can you use that term after everything that blacks have been through? Okay, let's uh, take another break here, and uh, we'll come back. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A desert locust infection began spreading throughout the Horn of Africa last fall, affecting eight countries. Today, new swarms are starting to form in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia, raising the crisis level even higher. Compassion International is helping Ethiopian families affected by the locusts in Jesus' name. And now... COVID-19 presents a new challenge. Lockdown measures hinder efforts to help those most in need. Learn more and find ways to pray at missionnews.org. And in Indonesia, families have to provide food, bedding, and even medication for the loved ones in the hospital. For some, that's an expensive undertaking. The last thing they want to worry about is where they'll be sleeping at night. And that's where Mission Aviation Fellowship steps in with their hospital house. The hospital house was so successful that MAF implemented similar projects in South Africa. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And thanks for listening to Mission Network News, the service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Did you guys see that on the news about the locusts in Africa? Man, you know, they can wipe out a crop pretty quickly. I remember when I was in graduate school at the University of Regina. I lived in North Dakota at the time, so I would often come home on weekends. And I remember one time I got down by the border. It was about... uh, what is it, 190 miles, I think, from Regina to Williston. And I got down uh, right by the border, and uh, my temperature, you know, was on high. And I literally had to pull over and scrape the grasshoppers out the front of the radiator so that my engine would cool down. It was terrible. There's a lot of suffering in this world. Okay. Enough about the N-word. Uh, I want to talk now about the video that I posted on my blog. If you look on the bottom of, the, of my blog post, it's a short video, and uh, I want you to watch that. It's a two, three minutes, and it's a discussion about Kanye West. Now, they make reference to a statement. Well, Bakari Seller says this is what happens when Negroes don't read. That, to me, is an application of the of the word Negro, which was used to be the polite term. But you know what he's doing. It's, it's pretty disgusting. 
he wants to he wants to call say Kanye West is a nigger, but he doesn't want to be accused of using the N word. So he says this is what happened when Negroes don't read. He doesn't say this is what happened when uh, blacks don't read. And so then the lady tries to soften it, you know, by saying, "Oh, that's a re- re- reference to Chris Rock." So you listen to that Chris Rock video. Now you don't need to watch all of it; it's pretty raunchy. But if you can suffer through the first three and a half minutes, you'll hear Chris Rock make that statement, make the statement that Bakari Sellers is referring to. Obviously, Bakari Sellers is classifying Kanye West as the type of person that Chris Rock is talking about. That's very unfair and really disgusting. Now, I was struck by this because I just by coincidence I happened to see the news report about Kanye West at the White House. And I didn't know what to think of it. Who's this Kanye West guy? You know, I don't know anything about rap music or and I don't even how why in the world they pay some guy so so much money just because he's knows how to I don't know. But I, I I listened to what he was saying in the White House and he was talking about fatherlessness in the black community and I'm thinking I don't know who that kid is, but man, finally somebody's bringing up the issue that's, you know, the root of the problem. But then he did something absolutely horrible. Kanye West got up and went around the desk and gave Trump a hug. Oh, a horse. <laughs> and those uh, blacks... You know, those uh, left-wing blacks despise him. How could he do that? (laughs) So they refer to him in that uh, disgusting manner. You watch it. Watch the the Chris Rock video on how he's referring to it and, and, you know, see if you think it's fair to say, you know, Negroes don't read. I mean... Clearly was a racial slur. It is really, really disgusting thing. Uh, oh, CNN has really gone down the tubes. It's a sad thing. I, I don't want to get into that now. Someday I'll do a podcast on the demise of CNN because I, I'll never forget when CNN started. It was an extraordinary thing. I loved CNN. Anyway, what I want to do now is is analyze some statements because I. I gave you the example of Trump's statement and, and, and said, and I still say emphatically, that's not a racist statement. So then when one might ask the question, what really is a racist statement? In fact, I don't even think LBJ's statement was really racist. It, it's in poor taste, I guess you'd say, but I don't really think, I don't think of him as a racist. Now, Canada's own LBJ is a racist. I, I don't, I don't really think so. I think he, he was using a term he shouldn't have used, but I don't think he was doing it in a negative way. I think his attitude was positive. But let's think about some uh, statements that um, could be considered a racist. I remember I was uh, driving my truck, and I, I used to listen to a lot of talk radio, and one of the I was in the trucking industry in the 90s, and one of the popular uh, radio talk show hosts was uh, Dr. Laura. And she was uh, talking one time about, I don't know how she got on the subject, but she said, you know, the blacks 
They even used this term, nigger, you know, to talk about each other, you know. It's almost like she's saying, if they can say it, why can't we say it? Why Why are they so sensitive when other people call them a nigger? They call them each other a nigger, you know. And she was saying it over and over again, nigger, nigger, nigger. I couldn't believe it. I said, boy, that's not going to go over very well. And sure enough, she got fired. Now, was she being racist? No, I don't think she was being racist, but I think she was being horribly, horribly insensitive. Partly because she's white. And partly because she's a Jew or Jewess. Now, I want to explain that. Okay? There's a big difference between Chris Rock using the N-word and a white person using the N-word. Now, I still don't think it's good for blacks to do that because they trivialize it and give white people an excuse to use the word. But there's a big difference. When Chris Rock uses the N-word... He's not making a racial criticism. He's making a cultural criticism. If you listen to his criticism, it's apt. It's, it's appropriate. I still don't think he should use the N-word to make it. But he's off, it's obviously not a racist statement because he's from the same ethnic group. He's not saying those people are genetically disposed to, to, to that behavior. So it's not a racist uh, use of the word. But when white people use it, no, a white person could say, well, I'm doing the same thing. I'm not criticizing the, the race, uh, but it shouldn't be done because it's much harder to tell. You know, there's, there's, there's such a history of racism associated with that word that if you use it, a white person uses it, there's at least the implication that they're referring to all blacks as being genetically inferior you know the bible says we should avoid all appearance of evil but the other thing about dr laura the point that she missed by a mile is the relationship between the blacks and the jews if you you know there was a uh, jesse jackson who's another person that just annoyed me immensely the way he uh, you know jesse jackson made his living on racism I always said if racism ended tomorrow, Jesse Jackson would have to find a real job. But he referred to New York one time as Jaime Town. <laughs> you don't want people to use the M-word. You shouldn't be using pejorative terms describing the Jews. But it it, it kind of gives you, uh, you know, an insight into the the feeling, the, the the negative feeling between the blacks and Jews in New York, and Dr. Laura was being very insensitive to that. It's exemplified by a joke that uh, Malcolm X told in his book. Now, Malcolm X was quoting Barry Goldwater. Uh, Barry Goldwater was a Jewish, he came from a Jewish family, wealthy Jewish family, and he ran for president in 1964. He told this joke, and... Malcolm X was quoting him. So this is a joke told by a Jew, quoted by a black. The joke involves Jews, blacks, and a Jewish person, a black person, a white person. Now, the joke is a put-down of both Jews and blacks, but not of whites. So I strongly suspect that whoever made it up was a white person. It isn't. 
that terribly funny, actually. But it is useful because it helps to explain the ill feeling between the blacks and the Jews. And so I want to tell you this joke and then talk about the stereotypes and examine whether those stereotypes are fair. The way the joke goes is like this. There's a black guy and a white guy and a Jew and uh, this genie appears and I don't know if they're on a desert island. I can't remember how it goes. But anyway, they each get one wish. So first it's the white guy's turn, you know. What do you want? Stocks and securities. He wants stocks and securities, investments. Okay, he gets his wish. Next, it's the black guy's turn. What do you want? He says, lots of money. And then it's the Jew's turn. And the Jew says, he said, what, what do you want? And the Jew says, some imitation jewelry in the address of that nigger fellow. Now, what's the stereotype in those... What's the stereotype of the white person, you know, just wants to be prosperous and successful? What is the stereotype of the black person? That blacks are gullible. What's the stereotype of the Jew? That the Jews are avaricious and that they view blacks with contempt and take advantage of them. Now, are those stereotypes accurate? Where do they come from? Are they true? Are they partly true? You know, every stereotype is going to be unfair to somebody. But you can see the feeling of resentment that blacks have that they feel they've been taken advantage of. And it's very unfair to put all Jews in that category. But there, 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 there was that feeling between the blacks and Jews and when Dr. Laura uses this word like this, she's being very insensitive to that. You know, you have to be sensitive to the perception to, to racism, but also to the perception of racism. When there's been a lot of hurt, you have to be sensitive to that in the way you, you talk about it. So while her statement may not be racist, it is very insensitive. Okay. Let me think of another one. My all-time favorite is the one Mel told me about <laughs> one of her neighbors in in Texas. And he's talking about Joey. I suppose Joey's about four or five then or something. And her neighbor said, takes a real white man to, be a, to have a towhead. <laughs> now, if you saw Joey when he was a kid, he, he, he definitely was a towhead. I mean, he was a toehead. But what is that statement saying? Takes a real white man to have a toehead. The guy who said that wouldn't call that racist. But real white man. Well, maybe we 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 would talk about you know what a what is a real Norwegian or something. You know, so identifying your ethnic group or being. Identifying with an ethnic group, that by itself is not necessarily bad. But, you know, it is the implication that it's better to be white, that you're lucky to be white. I guess that's what I would say. It's like the expression free white and 21. 
You know, it's, a, it's the idea that you're better to be white. You're, you're lucky if you're a white person. You're better off as a white person. You know, Malcolm X talks a lot about that in his autobiography. You really should read that. Uh, how whiteness was sort of exalted. That's that's really really sad, really sad. Uh, the um, was it the Institute for Creation Research years ago had a video and they talked about isolated gene pools and how if there were no isolated gene pools, you know, and everybody's mixed together, it would be very normal for a family to have a black child and a white child. Or was it Ravi Zacharias? I think who said that the differences between races are superficial. The similarities between people are fundamental. But we reverse it. We make the differences fundamental and the similarities superficial. And that's the root of racism. So it's the idea that, you know, if you're real, you're real white man, um, just the idea that, it's, that you're better off, you're lucky if you're white. <sighs> I have three daughters. One of them has blonde hair. Two of them have brown hair. Now, that difference is genetic. It's not a cultural difference. It's a genetic difference. But the difference between a brown-haired person and a blonde-haired person is not really fundamentally different from a black-skinned person and a white-skinned person. So to separate them into groups, as that uh, woman, that uh, school teacher in Iowa did, you know, she she uh, told the um, one day she told I can't remember which one she did first, brown eyed or blue eyed. I think she had the blue eyed first, and they had. Uh, she said, "I want you to know, blue eyed students are better than brown eyed students," and they all had to wear these signs. The brown eyed students had to wear signs showing that they had brown eyes. And right away, you know, they started to, they, they, they became morose and, and sad and they couldn't get anything right. And the next day she said, yesterday I lied to you. I told you that blue-eyed people were better. Actually, it's brown-eyed people that are better. And she reversed it. The blue-eyed kids had to wear these signs. And the same thing happened to them. Jane, was finding a way to get your students to reflect and understand race, reflect on and understand racism something you had given much thought to before you first tried this exercise on that day back in 1968? Yes, I thought of it from the day I told a black woman who called to ask if I would rent our house to coloreds that this was an all-white neighborhood. From that moment, I knew that I was a racist. I had behaved in a racist way, and I was going to educate in such a way that my students would never do what I had done. So on that day, um, was it a, a, a sort of a no-brainer for you that you were going to do this with the students because of what had happened oh, yeah. and how oh, the yeah. world would, had been shocked? I had watched the... You know, I came home from school the night before, but at night and the day Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, I came home from school, prepared to wash and dry the teepee that my previous year's third graders had made, to iron it on the living room floor, and to put it up in my classroom the next day. And I was watching telephone. I walked into my house. Telephone was ringing. I answered it. My sister said, um, is your television on? I said, no, why? She said, 
on the telephone. Did I say television? And I said, no, why? She said, you better turn it on. I said, why? She said, he's been shot. I said, who did we shoot this time? Because at that time, we shot people on a regular basis. And she said, Martin Luther King Jr. And then my world fell apart. I couldn't. I had taught my students about Martin Luther King Jr. I had taught them that Martin Luther King Jr. was all about hope. And for them, hope was an acronym for holding on to positive energy. And I knew that I was going to have to go into my classroom the next morning and teach my students something about why Martin Luther King Jr. was in the street, why he was marching, why he was angry. I was watching television that night, and there was Walter Cronkite saying to three leaders of the black community, when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? I was absolutely floored that he would say such a thing. I changed the channel. And there was Dan Rather saying to three leaders of the black community, don't you black people, don't you Negroes think you should feel sorry for us black white people because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you black people can. I wanted that teepee up. I threw it in the closet. I closed the door, and at that moment I decided my kids were going to learn the Sioux Indian prayer that says, Oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins the next day. I decided that not only would I teach them that prayer, I would arrange to have it answered for them. I would arrange to have my students walk in the shoes of a child of color in my room for one day. Now, I couldn't do what we do to children of color. That's too cruel. What we do to, to, to children of color and to their parents is absolutely too cruel to be done to anyone. But I decided I would, for one day, allow my blue-eyed students to find out how it feels not to be blue-eyed, not to be white in the United States of America. Hmm. When you got to school that next morning, was there already an awareness among all of the students that, the, you know, that, that had happened and there was something major going on in the, in the country? My students were aware of it. Stephen Armstrong came in and said, hey, Elliot, they shot that king last night. Why did they shoot that king? I said, we're going to talk about that, Stephen. And then we started to talk about it. Quick as we had finished this, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and saying God bless America, all those proper things. And then we started to talk about the killing of Martin Luther King, Jr. And my students didn't understand what had happened. They'd said awful things that their parents had said about that man being killed. Not that they were sorry, but they thought it was about time. And I can see that they weren't internalizing anything. And I finally said, do you kids have any idea how it feels to be something other than white in this country? Well, no, of course they didn't. I said, would you like to know? And it was like, yeah, yeah, we've already gotten out of spelling and handwriting. Keep this broad talk and we don't have to learn anything all day long. Kids do that with teachers all the time. So I said, okay, today we're going to judge students by the color of their eyes. And since I'm blue-eyed, and most of the students in this room are blue-eyed, blue-eyed people are going to be on the bottom the first day. And immediately, instantly, I turned those kids into what we had taught them to be. Arrogant, demanding, angry, vicious, little people who judge people by the color of their eyes almost immediately. Debbie, sitting in the front row, looked up at me and said, how come you're a teacher here if you got them blue eyes? Hmm. Yeah, that quickly, they began to be what they had learned from the significant adults in their environment, and I was one of those significant adults. I learned more that day than my students did because I found out watching them, as they became me and became the other people, the significant adults in their environment, that we were teaching racism on a minute-by-minute basis. I was absolutely shocked, disgusted, and scared. I wasn't scared about what was happening to my children. I was scared about what I was learning from my children. Were all of the students in your class white? Of course they were. I was raised in Iowa. 
a hundred percent white. The only thing that's the, the only thing that's integrated in rice kill is the dogs and cattle and pigs. No, every person is white. It was at that time and has been ever since. I think we've had one. I think we had one black teacher there over the years. Did uh, any of the students sort of rebel against what you were trying to do, or did they all just go with the flow? Well, the blue-eyed students were angry and defeated and and just intimidated and unhappy. The brown-eyed people were absolutely delighted. They were they became people that I didn't know. Except they were members of my family, I did know them. I mean, they became they became like other members of my family. None of them protested because we had done strange things in my classroom up until then. They knew that something else, something was going to come of this. They didn't know that we were going to reverse the exercise, and so the brown-eyed people were just delighted in their ability to abuse and put down their peers, who had been their best friends the day before. And then, and I sent them home without telling them that we were going to reverse the exercise. That's the only mistake I made that day. That was Friday. And they went home not knowing that we were going to reverse the exercise. No parent called me that night. I thought, after they went home, I thought, some parent is going to call. I'm going to lose my job over this because mm. of what they had learned on that day. No parent called. No administrator called. No school board member called. Nobody called and complained. Went into the classroom the next morning reversed the exercise, and the same kinds of things happened on Monday as it happened on Friday with one big difference. The blue-eyed people were much less vicious to the brown-eyed people than the brown-eyed people had been to them. And on Tuesday, we got in the magic circle, and I said, Now, why didn't you blue-eyed people get even with these brown-eyed people? You said you were going to. You said in the boys' room, boys' bathroom, that you are going to get even. Why didn't you get even? And they said, almost in a course, because we found out how it feels to be treated that way, and we didn't want to make anybody feel the way we felt. As long as I live, I will never forget. I was 18 years old, hitchhiking across the country. And I'd been down in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, lived in Oregon at the time, and I hitchhiked to Dallas. And uh, had been at uh, Expo '72, and then I hitched a ride with some guys from New York, and uh, they dropped me off at my sister's place in Tennessee. And uh, one night we were uh, at her neighbor's place. Uh, the, this guy was a police officer young man was a police officer. Anyway, he uh, had his all his paraphernalia there laid out on the bed or desk, or so I can't remember, but anyway, I, I didn't know what any of that stuff was, you know, and uh, so he was showing this stuff, and they were talking, I was kind of interested in, in uh, looking at that stuff, and I saw one particular, uh, just a second here, I'm going to pour myself some tea. One particular little device that I'd never seen, I'd never seen anything like it before. It had a handle, and the handle was not just a grip like a handlebar on a bicycle, but it had four little holes where you'd actually slide your fingers in and hold on to this thing, so you got a good, a good really good grip on it. And protruding out from the, the index finger, then, you know, the, the handle fit on your four fingers, and then the, protruding out from the industry was a strip of rubber and just flopped back and forth and at the end of it was a, a ball, a steel ball, lead ball, whatever it was encased in that rubber. So when you'd move this back and forth, that thing, that that steel ball would flop back and forth and what in the world was that? And so I asked this cop, you know, what's this for? And 
So he slides it on his hand, you know, and he says, you put this on your hand like this, and then when you go to hit a nigger, this ball flops over and hits it on the head and knocks him out. And I was just, uh, I felt like I'd been hit in the stomach. You know, I just had never been, I'd never seen that kind of raw racism before. It was just uh, really, really horrifying to me. Now think about this. How would you like to be a black kid in that cop's town? How would you like to be a black kid in that cop's town? (sighs) But you know, when I hear people talking about Uh, you know, redefining racism and watering it down so that disagreeing with a black person is considered racism. I think of that experience and how that, that racist statement, that racist cop, you know, his action, his statement, his attitude is just trivialized. And when I hear uh, Jesse Smollett referring to Trump as a nigger, Nigga, what a disgusting thing to say. And when I hear Bakari Sellers saying this is what happens when Negroes don't read, and, you know, it struck me because I just, by bizarre coincidence, I happen to have seen the news clip of Kanye West in the, in the White House, in, in the president's office. So I had seen the event they were talking about. And I had heard what Kanye West had said. And his statement was very good. So, you know, when I hear people like Bakari Sellers, and I don't know who they are, well, Don Lemon, I don't even want to start. Oh, that guy has a job still. It's, it's, a, it's a sad commentary on CNN. But that statement by Bakari Sellers is Every bit is racist, and every bit is vile, and every bit is vicious, and every bit is evil, as the statement of that racist cop in Clarksville, Tennessee, in the summer of 72. Racism is evil, pure evil. The world is black, the world is white, turns by day and then by night. A child is black, a child is white, together they grow to see the light. What a beautiful sight. Okay, you guys. That's all for now. I do want to come back and uh, later and talk about uh, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement and also the issue of white privilege because so much of it is taken out of the context of what real racism is and the history of racism in the United States. Okay, guys, 
Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted online at beijingdiary.podbean.com. That's beijingdiary.podbean.com.